This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. It's a bit hard to believe that one year ago, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. A lot happened during that time span, but a lot has also not happened. As of this week, Biden and the Democratic majority in the Senate have confirmed 41 federal judges. That's actually the most ever for a president's first year in office. He also led a successful effort to make vaccine against COVID-19 freely available everywhere in America through the American Rescue Plan Act, which also ramped up funding for manufacturing and deployment of scientific testing for the SARS-2 coronavirus. No Republican in Congress voted for the law in either chamber when it passed in March of last year. Biden and the Democrats also passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which included $550 billion in new federal spending for improvements in roads, bridges, electric vehicle charging stations, and broadband internet, among other things. The law was originally supposed to be passed in tandem with another bill, the Build Back Better Act, which has not passed. Both of them have been under constant opposition by congressional Republicans, led by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who figured out decades ago that a do-nothing Congress actually helps the GOP. The Republican opposition has also been greatly helped by the persistence of the Senate's filibuster rule, which, as currently interpreted, makes almost all legislation face a 60-vote hurdle. Most state legislatures in America don't have filibusters. And most national Democratic senators say they want to end the outdated rule. But two of them, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, have publicly committed to helping Republicans stymie President Biden and also to opposing his more progressive proposals. But did it have to be this way? What could Biden have done differently? Or is that the wrong question to ask? Joining me today to talk about all this is Heather Digby-Parton. She's a columnist for Salon.com and also one of the original bloggers on the internet. She's been operating her site Hullabaloo for 19 years now. Congratulations and welcome, Heather. Thank you for having me. There's been a lot that's happened in this first year of Joe Biden's presidency. I did want to highlight, though, on the judicial front, people talked a lot when Donald Trump was the president about all the judges that he confirmed. But actually, Biden is on a quicker pace for him. And and that's something that I think hasn't been appreciated enough. Do you think so? Oh, absolutely. And I think everybody's a little surprised by that when they do hear it, because it seems as though everything's been so stymied in the Senate. But this is actually a great example of how eliminating the filibuster can actually promote progress, because had they not eliminated the filibuster for lower court judges, and of course, they had eliminated them for Supreme Court judges, then this wouldn't be happening. And it's tremendously important And it's a lesson that one of the lessons that Joe Biden did learn from the years as Obama's vice president, he learned that in order to get these judges passed, you just push this through very, very quickly. You don't wait. You have your list at the ready and you just go ahead with your head down and get it done because they didn't do that in the first years of the Obama administration. And it caused tremendous gridlock. And that, of course, was the reason that they ended up eliminating the filibuster for lower court judges because they had to. The Republicans obstructed every judge that Obama nominated and did until they were forced not to. So there's an object lesson in that, in how the filibuster actually 
And again, that works for Republicans as well as Democrats. Eliminating the filibuster for judges meant that they have been nominating many more judges in both administrations. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. I mean, there was a point there where there were just, yeah, there were empty courts. They didn't have enough judges in there. So I think this is one, it is one of the unsung accomplishments, I think, of the Biden administration and one that comes directly out of lessons learned from the last time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Your point on the filibuster is important because on the filibuster during the Biden presidency, as I mentioned, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have been in favor of keeping the filibuster, but they have, in fact, you know, been voting for the judges and been voting to block filibusters on the judges. So it really does show that, as you said, it shows what you can do. And the thing is, though, the judicial nominations are not the only area where there are exceptions to the filibuster rule. That's something you and I have written a lot about that over the years. Uh, but let's maybe, for those who don't know the full history of all these exemptions that are available, there's actually quite a few as it currently stands. You want to talk about Absolutely. those? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we just saw one just just a month ago when they put an exception through for raising the debt ceiling. Obviously, the reconciliation process, which was done to prevent obstruction of the budgetary process over whatever minor arcane issues that that might have held up the entire U.S. budget or any budgetary issues. I mean, these things have been, there have been um, exceptions to the filibuster throughout its history. And in fact, up until very recently, the filibuster was used sparingly. It was not considered an an average, ordinary tool of the opposition to stymie all legislation that they did not like. That just wasn't how it worked. And in fact, it, it was used almost exclusively in earlier years just to stop voting rights and civil rights. That was the that was the main reason they used it. And it was a tool that they should have gotten rid of a long time ago because of that. However, in recent years, the Republicans just absolutely, and this was not just under McConnell, although he's the one who's turned it into a nuclear weapon, since the two parties have really polarized, which was in a process that was happening from the Civil Rights Act of 1965. I mean, and slowly but surely, they did end up being polarized. Up until mm. then, they had a, the two ideological poles were present in both parties. Yeah, and I'm sorry, yes, right. that bifurcation... The ideological sorting of the parties actually began when what was called the conservative movement began trying to cancel moderate Republicans. That's they invented cancel culture. I don't hear a lot of progressive commentators on TV and elsewhere pointing that out. The right wing invented cancel culture. They love it and they practice it far more than anybody else does. Absolutely. And they're good at it. I mean, they are ruthless with that particular tool, as we can see happening right now in the Republican Party under Donald Trump. He didn't invent it, but they were the ones they've made this litmus test after litmus test after litmus test in the Republican Party. And it was you follow the party line, you follow the dogma, the doctrinal imperative of the day. That's what you have to do. And they have been ruthless in exercising it. And that's you're absolutely right. That has resulted as much as anything in the two parties polarizing the way that they have. And there are no more liberal or even moderates. I mean, even if you consider Mitt Romney or Susan Collins, the concerned senator from Maine, these are not moderates in the sense that that we used to consider moderates who would be negotiating in good faith. And you could find they were on an ideological level, 
it wasn't just a, a temperamental thing to be a moderate and go, oh, I really don't care for Donald Trump's personality. It wasn't, that wasn't what a moderate was. Yeah. In the past, a moderate was someone who had some ideological similarities, some crossovers, some things that you could work with the other party. That's just not the case. I mean, I don't think Mitt Romney, he's a conservative. He yeah. doesn't like the wild radicalism of the, the MAGA clan, but that doesn't make him a moderate. He's a real conservative. And so there aren't any more of those in the Republican Party because they purged them. And actually, Mitt Romney is the closest you can come. And so as a result, it's very difficult to do any kind of cross-party negotiations anymore. And I think the Democrats would like to out of sheer necessity because they have fewer, it's the Senate, and they have fewer opportunities to elect more liberal senators just simply because of the of the way the senate is made up and there's smaller rural states and they tend to be more conservative and this on and on and on we all know that story so they are at a disadvantage in this situation because they actually have to have some moderates in their caucus in some respect or another it's very very difficult for them not to and that's why we find ourselves in a position like we're in today where they have a majority they represent a majority of the american people by far, I mean, million, tens of millions more people <laughs> voted for the Democrats in the Senate, and yet it's a 50-50 Senate. That structure leaves them at a you know, large disadvantage, and the Republicans have taken full advantage of that and decided to be a full-on obstructionist party yeah. just to stop anything that the, that the majority wants. Yeah, and the thing is, though, this is a, a trend that has been in motion for decades, but it was very strange yesterday. So today is January 20th, January 19th. President Biden had a very long news conference remarking on his first year in office. And he said several things in there that confirmed suspicions that I had had that Biden and his advisors, they, they seem to not fully understand the problem of Republican radicalism. And they assigned a lot of the blame for it to Donald Trump. So I'm going to actually read a, a quote that he said here. He said, I, I have had Five Republican senators talk to me, quote, bump into me, quote unquote, or sit with me, who've told me that they agree with whatever I'm talking about for them to do. But then they say, but Joe, if I do it, I'm going to get defeated in a primary. And then he went on to say that somehow that was Donald Trump's fault and that he was exerting that power over them. But the reality is that he's not. And Republicans actually defy Donald Trump on a fairly regular basis. I mean, if you look at Donald Trump's first year agenda, it was quite literally handed to him by Paul Ryan, who was the Republican Speaker of the House. Donald Trump had no agenda other than he wanted to ban Muslims. Like, that was it. Uh, mm -hmm. He had no other uh, ideas of what he wanted to pursue. So he said, okay, fine, I'll do whatever you say, Paul Ryan. And he did. And what Paul Ryan wanted was giant tax cuts for billionaires and to roll back healthcare for people. And so that's what they spent their time on. And then ever since then, after Paul Ryan retired as the speaker, there wasn't really any Trump legislative agenda. They kept talking about, oh, we're going to do infrastructure week. It became a, a meme, but they never did. They never put forward any legislation of any consequence after Paul Ryan left the scene. These are all things that have nothing to do with Joe Biden. He wasn't the president. This was the the GOP idea at that point. Absolutely. They, they Well, look, I mean, that was proven in Trump's tenure that the, the Republicans have no agenda. I mean, they, they don't have one. I shouldn't say they have no agenda. They have no positive legislative agenda. They have an agenda, but, but it's not that. And they, you're absolutely right. They passed the most important legislation 
on their agenda what they had, which was these tax cuts. And the rollback of Obamacare, I honestly believe that they had great relief that it didn't actually pass. They were absolutely grateful to John McCain and, and, and I'm talking about the leadership here. Mitch McConnell did not want to have to, to live with that. That was 20 million people were going to be without health care overnight. And of course, McConnell, again, has an agenda of he was packing the judiciary and basically doing whatever he could to get the most extreme judges on the courts as he could. And that was also something they accomplished. That was it. And I don't really think, I agree with you, just to go back to your original point, Joe Biden, I do not think he understood that. And I never did think he understood it. And part of the reason for that is that during the Obama administration, he was actually one of the most destructive members of the administration when it came to legislative negotiations. There were numerous situations, the worst of which was the 2011 budget deal in which Harry Reid had the agreement that he wanted. He had held the Republicans' feet to the fire. They were balking. And Joe Biden came in as vice president and blew up Harry Reid's deal. And what they ended up getting was an extension of the Bush tax cuts, which was not what Harry Reid wanted, wasn't what any Democrat wanted. I mean, Biden, I don't mean to trash him because he's the president, he's better than Trump or whatever, but this was never his strong suit. And the idea that this guy was going to be great at dealing with the Senate and dealing with Republicans always struck me as ridiculous because he's not good at that. You go back to the Anita Hill hearings when he was the head of the Judiciary Committee. Over and over again in his career as a senator, he was one who gave up the farm to the Republicans over and over again. And so, no, I don't think he understood that. I did have hope, however, that his staff did. A guy like Ron Klain, I don't think he is laboring under this delusion about the Republicans. I think he understands the chief of staff, and I think he understands exactly what he's dealing with, which suggests to me that the staff doesn't understand it. I really think this comes from the president himself, that he has been holding out some kind of hope over time that he would be able to cajole, at the very least, cajole his own party, Manchin and Cinema, the two senators, the two holdout senators, that somehow or another, his great skill, I think this is something that he overrates about himself, that he has great negotiating skill. And I don't think he ever did. I mean, Biden has his good points. And there are things about him that I think are genuinely admirable. But I do not think he is a skilled negotiator. I don't think he ever has been. And uh, I think we've seen that in recent days. And I, I really think that he's not one who we can count on to be able to counter Republicans. He's just not He's just not good at that. He never has been. I think one of the other dynamics, and this is this is something that I've written about the filibuster, the way that it's structured in terms of the exceptions to the rules, all of the exceptions favor Republicans because the core of the, the Republican political agenda is that we want to attack government. And they do it by two ways. One, by when they attempt to push legislation, actually create legislation or uh, executive orders to cut the budgets of government agencies, or at least stop them from growing. And then number two is they try to make politics dysfunctional. And the, so in other words, creating gridlock, stopping legislation from happening with the idea that basically if they can poison the well of politics so much that people just think that, well, see, government never gets anything done. Right. It doesn't matter who's the president. So I'm just not going to vote. Demotivation 
of people who oppose their ideas is such a core component of the right-wing political strategy. And yet I never hear it talked about ever really anywhere. Do you think people no, talk about it? I, uh, no, they don't talk about it. And if you do talk about it, you're considered some kind of a crank. I mean, you're almost sort of like, what are you talking about? The Russians were helping. What are you saying here? I find this very frustrating. Because it's clear to me, and obviously it's clear to you too, that that this is this is a long-term, well thought out strategy. It's not just some kind of, it's not just people reacting to whatever the situation is and running with it, although they're very good at that too. But the Republicans have discovered something, which is that they can retain power without actually doing anything. Their people are motivated, their own voters are motivated by the culture war and the competition of it. And they find that if they can create this sort of this sense of chaos and disarray and all that, that actually you know, energizes their people and it de-energizes the other side. And you're absolutely right. And if you bring this up, I mean, I, this is what I found over the years, that if I write about this, it's kind of, oh, come on, they're, they're not really doing that. This is just the way it is, as if it happens organically. And it doesn't, it's not. And here's the thing, whether it's deliberate or not, it's still a fact. And so you have to, if you're a, a progressive advocate or democratic strategist, you have to factor that into what you advise people to do or seek to do yeah. yourself. Like whatever the reason for this happening, it's real. And I'm going to play a video, a little segment here from Biden yesterday. So you talk about the idea of energizing the right-wing base has this gigantic propaganda machine that yeah. feeds them constantly, 24-7. It feeds them on talk radio. It feeds them on their religious radio. It feeds them in their churches. It feeds them on their Fox News TV and Newsmax and all these other places and on their Facebook feeds. It does all of that. But Biden, he seems to be very naive about this. Could school reopenings or closures become a potent midterm issue for Republicans to win back the suburbs? Oh, I think it could be, but I hope we've got that there, uh, that, look, maybe I'm kidding myself, but as time goes on, the voter who is just trying to figure out, as I said, how to take care of their family, put three squares on the table, stay safe, be able to pay their mortgage or their rent, et cetera, uh, has, is becoming much more informed on the um, the motives of um, some of the political players and some of the and the political parties. And I think that they are not going to be as susceptible to believing some of the outlandish things that have been said and continue to be said. You know, every, every president, not necessarily in the first 12 months, but every president in the first couple of years, most every president, excuse me, of the last presidents, at least four of them, have had polling numbers that are 44% favorable. So it's this idea that, but you all, not you all, but now it is, well, Biden's that one poll showed him at 33%. The average is 44, 45%. One poll him at 
I mean, the idea that um, the American public are trying to sift their way through what's real and what's and what's fake. And I don't think as uh, I've never seen a time when the political coverage, the, the choice of what political coverage the voter looks to has as much impact. I mean, I just was stunned when I saw that, that he literally thinks that people are taking the time to sift through thousands of articles and determine what's true. They don't have the time to do that. And if they don't know what's true, then how would they know what's true? <laughs> it's exactly. just, and, and there's such a crisis in progressive philanthropy and in democratic high-level consulting in that they don't understand just how big and how powerful that right-wing media is and that they have basically nothing to counter it. I, I find that just astonishing. I mean, I really do. After all these years, this has been going on for a long time. It really took off with talk radio and then Fox and then all the others. Now social media, which has just amplified it tremendously, the Facebook problem, all of this. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, it's monolithic, this right-wing media institutional dominance among their people. Now, it is true that people watch other things. They watch the news. They watch CNN, they read the New York Times, or they read their local paper or whatever. So you may not be solely dependent on that or even aware of what's going on in right-wing media. And that's really the problem because the mainstream media has certainly failed in many ways, in innumerable ways, and continues to do so in presenting the very problem that you're talking about which is this awareness of what is actually happening on the right. So you see these consultants, you see the president who, and th this happened before. I mean, people attributed, for instance, I'll just take one example. The 2018 election was a referendum on Donald Trump and the Republican party. And it was clear to me then, everybody came out and voted. It was a big turnout election. It was a nice blue wave. It, they had indivisible and run for something and all these groups that came up. I mean, this was a very exciting, energetic time for the left side of the aisle to have activism and have people engaged. And credit where credit are due, a lot of that had to do with Donald Trump because he was such an offensive character that people actually became aware of politics and wanted to work, you know, starting with the, the Women's March right after he was inaugurated. But what Democrats did in that case, instead of un using that situation to educate voters generally about the Republican Party, not Donald Trump, we knew who Donald Trump was, what kind of a party are we dealing with here? What kind of a, an institution are we dealing here that would elevate such a man? It's not him, it's them. <laughs> this is the party. This is part and parcel of their ideology and their strategy for many years. Look what it has produced. The Democrats didn't do that. Instead, the Democratic leadership went around saying we won because of health care, because people really wanted health care. And that's why we did it. The kitchen table issues, that's what people care about. Just like Joe Biden mentioning people wanting three squares a day and whatever. They're dealing with their problems, all of which is true. People do care about their own lives and their problems. I'm sure they're concerned about inflation and they're worried about their kids' school loans and all the rest of that. Those are issues that have to be dealt with. But that is not the dynamic that's driving our politics. 
and it wasn't the dynamic that was driving it during the Trump years. And the missed opportunity has made me just scream, you know, inwardly with frustration that they did not use the opportunity to educate people about what is happening on the right and continue to miss the opportunity even today. And this is in spite of the fact that we're talking about this threat to democracy and what they're doing on the state level and how that's becoming a true existential threat because they're putting in people throughout the the country at local elections levels all the way to the state level to try and thwart legitimate elections. In spite of all that talk, there still doesn't seem to me to be a true critique of why this is happening and how this is being exploited and manipulated by the right wing in the Republican Party. I'm sure Biden was right that he did have senators come up to him and go, Joe, I'm really sorry. I really wish I could vote with you or whatever. But first of all, I don't even believe it. They see the they're exploiting the situation. They see the advantages to themselves in doing this. And best case scenario is that they're total cowards. And I think there are fewer cowards than people like to say. I think it's less cowardice for the most part than it is people going, well, it's working. Yeah, working for us. So let's keep it going. I think that's a great point. And sometimes they will say that out loud that I don't like Trump's personality, but gosh, I sure love what he's doing. And there was a guy named Stephen Hayward, who's a conservative journalist, Republican activist, who really drove this point home quite well in an interview with The New Yorker. It's important to to remember that when Donald Trump was running in the GOP primary for the first time um, in 2015, the right-wing activists hated him absolutely hated him. Oh my God. And they hated him because he was promising he was going to move the party toward the economic center. And that's what the Republican elites are obsessed with, is upward distribution of wealth. But then once Trump became the nominee and the president, he did a complete 180 and stopped all of those promises of healthcare for everyone, high taxes for rich people. And according to Stephen Hayward, Trump had sold out to us, was how he phrased it. At the same time, though, because Democrats themselves do not talk about right-wing radicalism, they don't fund or create advocacy left-oriented media that is out there flooding the zone for their ideas. Instead, what they do is they get into endless, useless debates about what policies they should have in order to get the voters to like them. But, but the Republican Party has shown over the past 25 years now that voters don't vote on policy. And so mm-hmm. you actually can have almost any policy that you want. So you don't need to sweat it. The other paradox is that when you look at, and I was talking about uh, right-wing demotivational efforts, they actually encourage these intra-left policy fighting. They literally are paying Tulsi Gabbard money. Peter Thiel, one of Trump's biggest benefactors, gives a giant fat check to Tulsi Gabbard, a giant fat check to Glenn Greenwald, and lots of these other people who have dissident left, we'll put it nicely, viewpoints. And the sole goal of it is to create dissension, to create demotivation, to create cynicism. Because if you have two parties where one party represents the majority of the public, and then one party that is run by an extremist reactionary faction, which everyone views, including Republicans, everyone disagrees with Republican viewpoints, 
if you have a, a dynamic where you have a minority rump faction that controls one party and then a, a party that represents the majority, the idea both parties are the same fundamentally favors the reactionary rump faction. Yes. And they don't get that. I don't think they get that. I don't think they get it either. And I think that they keep thinking that there's some kind of radical middle, whatever they used to call it, that there's some kind of natural silent majority, that there's a bunch of, or normies, that the common parlance in social media, that there's this group of people who will rise up and be able to thwart this strategy, that they will win. And the truth is that, I mean, they won the last election, although half the people in this country believe they didn't win the election, or almost half. And they are willing to state that they believe it. Many of them truly do believe it. And, and that is, a, never seen anything like that. I mean, that this is a completely unique situation where you have this vast number of Americans who believe that the current government is illegitimate. And based on nothing, by the way, I mean, this was made up by Donald Trump and the Republican parties just shrugging its shoulders going, yeah, what are you going to do? They're not doing anything to change that. And made up Which before be the... the votes were even cast. That's yes, the important this... thing. They were saying this before any votes were cast. Absolutely. This, And in fact, they were leading up to it and then up to and including people like the Attorney General Barr who were drawing out, who were out on televisions and saying there's a good chance that the vote's going to be compromised by foreign actors and that mail-in voting is really bad. They were leading up to this. They planned it. They set out to do it and they did it. And of course, you have Donald Trump who has endless supply of chutzpah, who was willing to take it beyond what they could have dreamed, but it worked. It worked and we're watching it work. And everybody's still standing there going, well, we're going to overcome this at the ballot box. Okay, good luck with that. This is the most radical thing I've ever seen in my life, and I think it's the most radical thing we've ever seen in, in American politics since the Civil War. This is a hugely, hugely destabilizing act that has taken place, and the Republican Party is going along with it. They're not just going along with it. They're pushing it. They're benefiting from it. They're happy to see it. This is going to work for them. And I, I agree with you. This idea that somehow or another we're able to grasp the gravity of what is happening and just be able to wrap our minds around what is happening and assume that somehow or another that everything's going to right itself because the vast majority of the American people, what did Biden say? They're seeing that through the fake and the whatever. I mean, of course that's not true. I mean, yes, there are plenty of people who look at this and go, that's nuts. That's crazy. When you see things that happened this week with the Voting Rights Act, that rather pathetic display that went on last night, of the Democrats, I don't know what, did they think that they were going to put the Republicans and Mansion Cinema on the hook and that somehow, or not, I guess they'll be embarrassed by history. And so therefore that's, that's a good thing to do. To me, I, I, I always think of George W. Bush when they asked him, where do you think you're going to wind up in history? And he said, history? Well, I'll be dead. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. So, and I think that that's what all those people thought were, are, are thinking as well. Yeah, they don't yeah. care. Yeah, no, they, they don't care about history. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Democratic elites suffer from what I call Sorkin syndrome, which is yeah, for sure for the sure. idea that if you just have a great enough speech, that they will finally realize, gosh, you know what? I was wrong. I'm That's sorry. So wrong. Um, here, I'm <laughs> going to be the good guy now, and it's so incredibly naive. Incredible.
And it doesn't, it, I, I, and I feel it's on progressive pundits to start really calling this out now a lot more because this naivete, a lot of these democratic consultants have been in the business for far too, like James Carville, James Carville doesn't know a thing about politics anymore. You can't listen right. to anything that guy says. He's irrelevant and nothing he says is correct. Now, I will say one thing, though, that Biden at least has not taken bait to get drawn into right-wing pseudo-controversies like Sesame Street or things like that. So and he, he hasn't bitten on the deficit reduction bait either so far. I mean, yeah. we'll wait and see. But that was one I was waiting for. I assumed that it was going to be on the table. That, And I assumed the Democrats were going to put it on the table because they love to do that to appear to be fiscally responsible. But that so far, we haven't seen that. So thank goodness for small favors. We have to take our victories where we can get them. Yeah. So the Washington Monthly had an article that just came out. The thesis is trying to expand the Democratic voting area and to, to look at areas where Democrats haven't done so well. And uh, they talked to a guy who is a, a state senator in Wisconsin, whose name is Jeff Smith. And he talked about how Democrats at the national party level don't trust people to come up with their own campaign strategies. They push these cookie cutter ideas on people and it doesn't work. So he basically decided, well, you know what, I can't rely on these people because they're providing me a canned script and out of state volunteers to just read a canned script and call people. And it doesn't work. And so he hired his own campaign manager and he and his campaign manager just went and knocked on 20,000 doors and, and just started talking to people and actually telling them what he was about, having them hear firsthand what he was doing and what he wanted. And as a result, he outperformed the top of the ticket, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Tony Evers in Wisconsin. So he beat him by 3% in his hometown and 1% more in the rural areas. And one of the other things that he was asked about in this article, and I'll put the link in the show notes, but the author of it asked him, okay, so what would you recommend that the Democratic Party do for you and, and candidates like you? And he said, I would recommend training for local volunteers. And then funding for year-round radio programming that counters GOP disinformation and builds the brand of individual candidates. And that's not what they're doing. But that's the thing. You have to go where the people are. So there's a lot of people in democratic politics who have this distorted sense of how relevant the New York Times is or how relevant MSNBC is. Like the reality is that Almost no one is reading that stuff or watching that stuff. And so you have to go where they are. And if they're in their car driving somewhere and listening to the radio, and if you're not there, then how are they going to know what you have to say? Right. Certainly the, the right-wing biased media is not going to tell them what you have to say. You're absolutely right. And of course, I think we have to go back a little bit here and recognize that there's been a battle within the Democratic Party on the left for a while now about the theory of, of change here, taking your <laughs> title of your show, which was that do we go and try and convince rural white voters who are antagonistic to us, do we go there and do we try to get those votes or do we pump our own constituencies to get greater turnout? 
And that's been an, an argument that's been going on for 20 years at least on how do we win? I mean, basically, they're trying to figure out how do we win? We've got this situation here. They have certain structural advantages. How do we, how do, we do that? I think that we've learned over the past few cycles that they can't leave that rural vote on the table. They, they can't do it. Because even in places where you have statewide elections, like you just had in Virginia, for instance, which was a very narrow victory by this guy, Glenn Youngkin, and everybody treated it as if it was the second coming of, I don't know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or something, or Ronald Reagan, I guess is a better example. It was a very narrow victory. And it came from the margins that were in those rural areas. The Democrats did manage to get plenty of their voters out, but they were absolutely devastated in the red districts in the rural areas of Virginia. And so I think it's become clear. It's not just that. There have been numbers of examples of this. And as we can see when we look at House races or even in terms of the Senate, that those margins can make a huge difference in the swing states where you've got the big cities, the Democratic constituencies. Let's assume you get the vote out. You still have to get some votes in rural areas. And they just weren't even trying. And I think I think perhaps that is changing. But your point is well taken that they're not, they don't have a clue about how to do that. I mean, it, it is literally like two different worlds, I think. And I think listening to the candidates who are in those areas, like those are ideas that you just mentioned, uh, year-round radio support. First of all, that isn't particularly expensive. It's, it's not, doesn't cost a huge sum of money, but it's something that could be done. Local training, trusting the candidate to pinpoint the issues that are salient because they've gone around in there. I mean, Republicans do this all the time. They run different campaigns. I mean, they have voters who have a completely different idea of what Republicans stand for than uh, voters in other places. And part of it is they're shameless. So they, they can contradict themselves from one sentence to the other without having any fear that they're going to be held accountable for it. So that is, that's a strength of theirs that they're able to do that. They don't feel defensive about the positions that they take because they're shameless that way. I call it their superpower. But nonetheless, the Democrats have to find a way to at least increase their margins in these areas because they're losing it so overwhelmingly now to Republicans. And that's the Republicans' great strength is in this vast rural part of America. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this has been a problem with the Democratic national strategy. Their viewpoint that we've got a great economic message, we're going to help the people, we're going to get the working class guys, we're going to get them back to work, and we'll do this, that, and the other. It's almost like they have a stereotypical idea of what rural voters care about or what white rural voters care about. I mean, there are plenty of Black and Hispanic rural voters that are Democrats, but mm. it's predominantly white, and they're very conservative. And I don't think the National Party has ever really, they've never really understood. And there's also this control factor, which is a huge problem. A lot of us who've been deal working in the activist left and who've been writing about this and observing this for a long time have been lamenting this fact that they always, they, they send somebody in, parachute somebody in with a script and here's what you have to do. If you want our money, this is what you have to do. And by the way, it isn't just the Democratic Party. This is a lot of the Democratic, the big money Democratic groups as well, who do exactly the same thing. And and they send in their people. You better listen to them. If you want yeah. our money, you better do it. And if which, you don't want our money, we'll give it to somebody else, yeah. which is always what no, the hangs over. Yeah, exactly. And it goes totally against what they say are their ideals, which is that we're trying to lift people up and have a grassroots exactly. movement and serve what people want. But we're only going to get there 
by you doing what we say, peons. Um, this is a proven strategy for winning, except of course it isn't. It's yeah. not a proven strategy. They don't have a proven strategy. Yeah. Them. And then the other thing also though, is that just to go back the, the idea of the, of policy, right. this Again. idea that you're going to devise the perfect policy and that voters care what you say about policy. They only slightly care. And so what they do care more, though, is that you talk to them. And the progressive advocacy space doesn't talk to them. They think people are watching MSNBC or CNN. They're not. Like the viewership right. of all cable news channels is still less than one ABC, World News Tonight. People just are not watching this stuff. And then the other thing also is that they have this over-dependence on commercials. They think that if somebody, if they run enough commercials on the radio or television or internet, that somehow that's going to persuade people. Like people don't want to see your commercials. They hate them. <laughs> I don't think people watch commercials anymore. I mean, I think the modern technology makes it possible for you to skip commercials. And I think most, I think a lot of people do, or they tune them out as they always have. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Sure, commercials, fine. Run commercials. I don't care. But that is not going to do it for you. What's really important about what you're saying, and I think it's really, really apt, is that people aren't listening to the details of this stuff. They vote on heuristics, right? This is about who do I have this feeling about? What, what is that? You know, how are they speaking to me? How is this relating to me? And people seem to be, first of all, there's, there's way too much economic determinism in our culture generally, and certainly in our political culture, in which everything has got to be about economics. It's got to be about money. It's all about whatever economic issue people are concerned about. Not saying it isn't important. Of course it is. Everybody cares about their economic well-being. The human condition is way more complex than that. And I think the right has shown that. They have absolutely proven this in my mind beyond any doubt that people are not necessarily voting on econ their economic self-interest and that appeals to that alone they sound dry and abstract most of the time now there are ways to do it i think that that are much more visceral and much more immediate and much more meaningful to people but it's more than that it, it is absolutely more than that there's you know this culture that we're in right now there's a lot of angst part of it a lot of it has to do with COVID, of course and also the fact that for whatever reason, our faith in our systems and our government and our culture itself to be able to handle something like this has been severely shaken. That's very disorienting to think that, geez, this thing happened and look, it's still happening and we're still suffering. And you think that mm. America can do things and it just seems like over and over again, we get proven that, you know, that we, we're not very good at doing anything. That's the kind of thing. And Biden takes a stab at speaking to that stuff, the soul of America, but it has a different feeling when it's coming from a national politician like him than it does if it's a local politician, just talking one-on-one -on -one to constituents, like your guy walking around in Wisconsin and knocking on all those doors and sitting down and having a discussion. And when you do that, when you have a discussion with people, forgetting the political polarization, which certainly exists, but you're just sitting there going, man, things feel really bad you know this is grim and you can find this point of agreement where you can go yeah this is an unpleasant time you can grow out of that but it takes a real concerted effort and there's been a number of studies that back this up 
of the face-to-face -face interaction among people of the community, making all the difference. It's not like in 2004 when Howard Dean was running and they sent in all the kids from all over the country to Iowa and they were all wearing orange caps and they were running around and they've got nose piercings and they've got purple hair and all this stuff, which I think is totally cool. These Iowans were a little put off because this was coming from somewhere outside. So you can't just parachute people in and have them flood the the place wherever it is it's got to happen from within the community itself you now there's a lot of work involved in that and i think there's some level uh, that where that's happening a lot of these indivisible people that came together during the 2018 campaign a lot of them have moved into local politics they're running for city council and they're doing that there's run for something one of the groups that's putting people in to run for local and, and state offices I mean, there is some of that happening. Once you get into the campaign season and you get the big shot consultants and you get the DC central players start to come into play, it tends to fall apart. Yeah, and it's very—it's an insular community. And I think it, it was illustrated really well recently by there was a controversy in democratic political circles around this invented word Latin X or Latinx. Now, if you speak Spanish or Portuguese as your first language, or you know people who do, you know that that term is very uncommon. And in fact, in a August 2021 Gallup poll, only 4% of people who were Hispanic or Latino use the term to describe themselves. But that word just crept into democratic political rhetoric over the past few years. And it, it was absurd. And despite their claims to be interested in political data and having all the right numbers, they just kept using this term in their political communication that the community itself does not use. And finally, things came to a head recently when Ruben Gallego, who is a Arizona congressman, officially banned his staff from using Latinx. And he said that people who use it, who are Hispanic or Latino, they usually tend to do it only because that's what they think rich white liberals want them to refer to themselves as. It's an insult to our language. It's an insult to our culture. And if you can't see that, you know what, you're still banned from using it. And I understand if some people want to use that for themselves, that's fine. But people literally don't know what you're talking about when you use that word to them. Like half of people have never even heard of that term. And they don't know how to say it when you look at it in, in the written form. It was just like you said, Latinx, Latinx, what are we talking about here? Look, there's a lot of that. Let's not mince words. There's a lot of that sort of thing happening on the left, which is coming out of academia, mostly a very ultra left activist circles where, you know, there's changes in language and, and there's a lot of cultural churning in ways that are very uncomfortable for some people and that are difficult. It's happening quickly and it's happening in ways that seem almost bullying, like pushing things that are difficult for people to understand. I get that. I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to all sides in those situations because I think that a lot of these changes are legitimate and I get that you have to be accommodating to the people who are demanding those changes because they have good reasons for it and there's a lot of energy that's building behind those things. 
But it and, has and to come you, from think, the bottom. That's where of it has course. to come. So you have to respect you have to respect it when it's coming up. It's also coming from from elite circles as well. And you know, like I said, in academia and in media and other places like that. So it's it's hard to sort that out. Having said that, I think there are ways for people to be able to thread that needle if you're dealing in politics, dealing with real people. I think you can be sensitive to both sides there. I think the problem is is that when politicians, consultants and strategists get in there and they start, let's do a focus group and let's figure this out and we're going to do this, that, and the other. And they start to force this stuff down people's throats. I mean, I think that it's like your guy in Wisconsin there in the Washington Monthly article. He's out there talking to people and you've got to leave room for him. I mean, you don't leave room for racism. You don't leave room for disrespect for minorities. You don't leave room for sexism and misogyny. I mean, those are things that are indisputably deep democratic values. But there are ways of talking about these things that are different depending on who you're with and the region that you're in and the way you're doing it. And there has to be room for that. And it's important to note that the article actually doesn't even talk about policy. So, and and, and I hate to keep repeating this idea. No, I think you're right. It's so important, this big protracted struggle between progressive and moderate. These are distractions and they're certainly encouraged by the reactionary right. It's fine for people to have whatever policy ideas they want, as you said, not including ones that are hateful or ones that are fundamentally enabling of structural problems like the Senate filibuster. So you shouldn't support people who support that. But so with those caveats, what tax rate you want or what view about Israel you want or what view about foreign trade or tariffs. These are not things that you need to have a death struggle about. You just don't need to. People can think what they want about them. Absolutely. And I think that that's how it used to be. I I mean, my my feeling is is that in the past, politics was much more amorphous. That there was just the idea of this guy, he did something and I feel good. Or he did something and I feel bad. But the details of that, I don't think that people were definitely intimately engaged with whatever the policy was on that. Now, people like you and I, I mean, we do this for a living, so we're intensely enmeshed in a lot of the policy stuff, and we see where these things are falling and how this can affect this, that, and the other, and we write about it and we talk about it, but it's important that we not mistake ourselves for the average American, because we most certainly are not. I mean, even among my own friends and family, it's all right already. Shut up about whatever the capital gains tax. We don't care. It's a mistake, I think, to extrapolate, and this has always been a big problem with the media in general, is that they extrapolate from their own knowledge base and their own experience from that, that they are an average person and they're not. It's a very, very small group of people that care in any great depth. It's one of the things that always frustrates me about the democratic debates when they have these presidential debates is that they just get absolutely mired in complex, tiny little bits of detail to differentiate themselves one from the other. And it never is the reason that they're being differentiated. The, the reason people are, are differentiating among them is, again, it's that heuristic sort of experience where you just feel something with someone. It's a sort of a sense that this person is getting beyond those details that they're all talking about. And people are making all kinds of strategic decisions in their own mind about who has the best chance to win and who do I want to watch for the next four years on my TV. And there are a million reasons why people vote, but you're absolutely right. I used to write about this 20 years ago. I was writing about this. Democrats need to stop talking about their 10-point plans. Nobody cares about their 10-point plan. That is not how people 
that's not how people vote. It's not how they think of politics. And right now, like here we are in a situation, you just brought up the idea that they're encouraging this infighting among Democrats. Here we see it with the school closures, for instance. This is an excellent example. You've now got parents up against teachers, up against unions, and they're all fighting amongst themselves here, and bureaucrats and state bureaucrats and government officials and school boards. These are all people who have a stake and, and care for kids. You know, this is not something that you're looking at a bunch of people who don't give a damn. It just isn't. These are people, your parents, teachers, school board members, these are people who care about kids. And they're in a struggle over how to deal with an, with an unprecedented problem we've never had before. And to deal with it within the framework of having some new technology that kind of changes things and could perhaps exacerbate some of the problem. By that, I mean virtual school. And when you look at it, who are the constituencies we're talking about there? We're talking about mothers, mostly for whom childcare tends to fall more commonly. Teachers, another female-centric occupation. Plenty of men there, but lots of women too. School board members, but you've got and unions. And this is a public employee union, which is a democratic constituency. Who's benefiting from this? Who's benefiting from that fight? It isn't the Democrats, that's for sure. This is their constituencies. These are what you would consider to be part of the Democratic constituency, all fighting among themselves. Who's benefiting? The right wing. They're going to run against this thing and they're going to do it. And you saw Biden talking about it. They asked him directly, do you think this is going to work? And he goes, yeah, it could work. I'm going, well, yeah, if you just let it happen. I mean, you're just sitting here letting this thing happen. Instead of actually addressing the issue as people are experiencing it and letting people know Who's benefiting from this? And know? who's behind it? Because this is what they did with the critical race theory manufactured controversy. So it obviously was not a term that people had heard of. So you can't be concerned about something that you've never heard of. Democrats. So here's a paradox for me as somebody who used to be on the right wing and complain about liberal media bias. That was my job for a number of years. But having been on both sides of the spectrum now, it is actually true that the news media, the mainstream media is dominated by people who are Democrats. Now, they're not progressive Democrats. They're they're moderate Democrats or conservative Democrats. But that fact actually harms the Democratic Party more than it helps them in terms of that it makes people like Joe Biden or other high-level Democrats think that if they give a press conference to the mainstream media, then the job is done. And they have no understanding that the mainstream media is irrelevant to probably 80 million Americans or more, probably more than that. You've got more. Yeah. yeah, Like, let's say, let's say a hundred million Americans never have heard of George Stephanopoulos. They've never heard of Joe Scarborough. They've never heard of Thomas Friedman. They don't know who any of these people are. And so if you think that your job is finished, oh, I I got this talking points placed over on CNN today. That's it. I'm done. I can go sit down. That's incredibly and astonishingly naive. Oh, absolutely. And they've thought that forever. And in, and you're right. I hadn't actually thought about this, but that, that this was a this was a blatant right wing strategy. They did this on purpose. They sat around and this is back in the 70s and went, look, we've got a problem here. We need to we need to put pressure on the media. They are not our friends. We got to get the media. You've got to put pressure on them. And so they started this whole liberal media thing. 
And they did put pressure on them. They pressured them over and over and over again. And it worked. They got the media, which was probably, it was way more liberal in that era than it is now. And they pressured them very, very strongly over many, 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 many years, decades. And in the meantime, built up their own alternative media. Which was far as, more biased. Blatantly biased. I mean, now it's a joke. They don't even Pretend, try to deny yeah. it. Back in those days, I mean, they did set out to do this. This was an absolute strategy. This has been documented. They admitted to it that they did this. And the result has been obvious. They pushed the media itself to the right in the process, pushing much of the culture to the right. And it, you know, enabled the right-wing media to have this space where they could be the alternative media and there was nothing on the left. And you're absolutely right. And I hadn't actually thought about this. What this did was delude the Democratic Party into believing that they had a media that was somehow fair and was going to give them a fair shake and that that's all they needed. And they didn't really need anything else because we have this, this all these media people, they're going to be fair. And no one cares they, what the right wing media says. They're irrelevant. They're stupid. Everyone knows they're right. dumb and they have no influence. That's what they all think. And the thing is, they have an influence on everything. They don't just have an influence on the right wing viewers that are watching it that influences the entire culture this stuff filters in i mean this is one of the things that is so obvious to me like take critical race theory right that was something just plucked out of nowhere by the right they pumped it in their media it made it now they have social media to help do this they pumped it to the point where now it is part of the mainstream discussion that's going on Critical race theory is not taught in public schools. It just isn't. It isn't a thing. It's a thing that they made up. And it's a proxy. We know what that is. It's a proxy for civil rights, for black attainment. For in talking American about society, the history of For racism. talking about racism. And they don't want to do that. So they used this thing and they pushed it into. The, I don't think anybody in the country was worried. I mean, anybody, even the right wing was worried up until maybe, you know, a couple of years ago that people were being taught about slavery in school, that that was just, of course they are. Huge part of our history, big war as a result. hundred years of apartheid came after it. I mean, this is our history, right? I mean, it's, it's central, it's everything. And the idea that somehow or another that's bad, and now down in Florida, Ron DeSantis just announced that he doesn't want it taught in any schools, that anyone, anything that will make people feel uncomfortable about our history of racism. We don't want people to feel discomfort, he says. I mean, that's insane. Of course, we should feel uncomfortable. Everyone should be uncomfortable. We should be aghast. And, well, the, and then these are happened. the same people who mock the idea of left-wing snowflakes. Right, snowflakes. <laughs> these people, they don't want to feel any discomfort about America's racist past and present. They permeate the mainstream when they do these things. And it's not just confined to their little corner of the world. I mean, there are some things, there's some really nutty screwball stuff that's out there. A lot of the QAnon stuff and things like that, that does stay within their own little orbit. And it's still very powerful within that. And it's something we should be concerned with. But a lot of this stuff does come, it seeps in whether we like it or not. And it ends up being something that becomes part of the conversation, which is exactly what they want. They want people to feel up in arms about race because they are tapping into the sort of racist id of a lot of people who don't even know they're being manipulated in this way and yeah. basically probably wouldn't act on any of that if they weren't pressed into doing yeah. it. And they are very, very good at that. And I don't think the Democrats still to this day recognize that at all. I really don't, even after all this, even after Trump. 
Yeah, and uh, overall, I would say it's probably a function of that a lot of these people at the upper echelons of democratic politics, they're isolated from the regular public. They're isolated from their own voters. So I actually am somebody who, before I started this show and started Flux, I and, and was working, I, I worked making polls. I was a pollster. I wrote about them. I analyzed them. I created them. And the idea that you can learn what people think from polls is actually not fully true because you have to understand how to frame the question, but to get the person to understand what you want to know. And then number two, they have to want to tell you it. And that th sounds like such a basic concept, but that's a, these are actually very difficult problems in the polling oh, world sure. and polling response rates have just fallen into the toilet. And so lately people have been putting forward the idea of focus groups, but focus groups are inherently very problematic because they, again, have very. extremely small uh, sample size. They're extremely vulnerable to group thing. You get 10 people in a group and then you start talking to them through your favored language of course, they're going to agree with you. Imagine that. Okay. Imagine that. And then you have the other alternative, which is especially after Trump won in 2016, where you had a bunch of New York and San Francisco and D.C. reporters going, you know, parachuting into a diner. So tell me, what do you think of Trump? They're not going to tell you what they really of think course. because you're some asshole from the city who's come to look down on them. They don't trust you. Even if they were going to say what they think, they don't fully know it. Like they can't, exactly. they can't articulate it. So to think that you can spend an hour with someone and they're, let's say they're voluntarily there and doing it. You can't really know that much from these things. And they're so obsessed with these tools and ideas that mm -hmm. they just have no idea what's going on anymore. And they think the electorate is a lot more conservative than it is. And they think that the public, as I said, that the public cares about the mainstream. Their ideas are all antiquated, frankly. I think so too. And we thought that this data journalism, that all of that was going to be a big change. We could quantify all this stuff. We could look at it. We could crunch those numbers and we could really figure out what people think and how we need to talk to them and who to target and all of this stuff. And it was very exciting for about 10 minutes until people step back and realize that, of course, that as we've been saying, humans are complicated. And it is not easy to quantify any of that stuff. In fact, it's impossible because people feel differently about things from minute to minute. I mean, there are people who are very, very much engaged. If you go to a Trump rally and you are interview everybody at the Trump rally and you're doing it there, they're probably fine telling you exactly what they think about that stuff because they're at a Trump rally. And of course, anyone who goes to a Trump rally is a true believer. There's somebody who is going to, who really feels strongly about Trump and everything he stands for. They're dressed up in outfits. It's like a cult. They're going to a Grateful Dead concert or something. I mean, these are devoted fans. <laughs> and so you're going to get, they will be able to tell you what they think. That has zero to do with what an average Republican voter or even somebody who likes Donald Trump thinks. They do not tell you anything about that. And it is very, very difficult to figure this out. There are sociologists who deal with this. There are studies. There are people who do great in-depth studies of, of people's of attitudes. And I think there's plenty of information to be gleaned in all of that. But the way that we depend upon things, and it's interesting that you bring up polling, 
because I mean, I think people have recognized that polling now, I mean, for many, many years, people really believed polls. And we're starting to think maybe polling isn't the best way to determine these things. And people use polling for more than just the horse race parlor game. People use polling for how to talk to people, for how to strategize and bring together their campaign. And maybe they need to think twice about that. And God help us if they go to focus groups, because what you just described is absolutely true. I think they're worthless. I honestly do. And I worked a little bit in advertising at one point in my life. And I'm telling you, advertisers know they're worthless too. I mean, they use them, but they do not rely on them. They really don't. And, you know, advertisers are much more sophisticated about this stuff. They, they go for the gut. That is what they go for. And half the time they miss because they don't actually know what the gut is, but that is what they're looking for always. They're not looking for policies, 10-point plans, telling you, let's give you a list of all the good things about our product. They know that doesn't work. They know that is not how people make those kind of decisions. They know that that's not how people think. And for some reason, politics doesn't has never really, I think on some level they understand it, but maybe they just don't know how to do it. Or I shouldn't say politics. I mean, liberal politics. I think another factor probably also is that, that there is a lot of cross-pollination between academia and progressive activism. And sure. so the job of professors is to try to analyze things using data and studies and things like that. Those tools have limits. There's that phrase, when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. That's in a large degree what's infected democratic politics, that they have an approach that at one point was effective. And therefore, it will always be effective right. in their minds. I just released a, a lost episode of this program, which was stuck in my crashed laptop that I had, an interview with a guy from the Pew Research Center. And what we were talking about was a study that they had done about Twitter users versus non-Twitter users. And the Twitter users were very different, and political tweeters were very different. And so the idea that you can use Twitter messaging as oh some God. sort of proxy for what Americans think, it's, it's not true. And you're wrong if you <laughs> think that. Like It's a huge mistake, huge mistake to do that. Yeah. I think it's destructive. It's not just it's not just not helpful. I think it's it's actually counterproductive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This has been a great discussion. We could probably go on for a lot longer, but I don't want to do that to you, Heather. But I appreciate you being here. So oh, it's fun. yeah, so you are on Twitter at Digby56. And then yep. of course people can also check you out on digbeesblog.net. You, you as I said, you just came up on 19 years, so that's Yep. Great, pretty neat. Good for you. Pretty neat. And Salon, I write there every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so you can always catch me there too. Yep. All right. Great. Thanks so much for being here. Okay. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. 
And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.